Well, amen. It's good to see everyone here this morning. I would invite you to take your copy of the Lord's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 32. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 32. While y'all are doing that, I'm going to make a motion in an unofficial session of business and say we need to buy some new waiters for the baptistry. Those have a hole. So anyway, session closed. But today I want to talk to you, continuing about the family series on A Guide to Thrive. When Tunis Becomes Oneness, this is part three, as we're going to look at a husband's role and responsibility in the relationship of marriage as God has intended it and designed it. And we have been looking a lot in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, where the design of God is laid out as he creates man and woman. The week before that, we talked about Genesis 3, as we talked about the liabilities and obstacles that were introduced to that relationship because of sin. Today, we're going to look at Ephesians 5, which is Paul's interpretation of Genesis 2. He's going to help us process this is what a Christian marriage looks like in light of God's design, in light of the problem of sin, and most importantly, in light of who Christ is, because marriage symbolizes something very important, and that is the relationship between Christ and his church. So, if you would like to hear the wife part of this story, come back next Sunday. But for today, we're going to look at the husbands, and I'm doing it backwards because Paul starts talking, when he starts talking about this in Ephesians 5, 22, he starts talking to the wives. But I'm going to start in verse 25. I'm going to begin with the husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the quotation of Genesis there. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the Word of God. So this morning we see this, that Paul is taking Genesis 2, and he's fleshing out in his day, his modern period, not the modern age that we live in, but thousands of years after creation, Paul is giving practical application for what does God's design look like in the confines 
of Christian marriage. And he is trying to spell it out for them. And that's what we want to do today as well. We have the advantage of not just the design in Genesis 2, but we have also the interpretation, the inspired interpretation of Paul about the design here in Ephesians 5. Our main statement is this. It starts with the husband. When it comes to marriage, it starts with the husband. When it comes to healthy marriage, it starts with the husband. And here is the reason why. Because it started with Jesus. In marriage, a healthy marriage begins with the husband. Because in our relationship between Christ and us, it began with Christ. So principle number one, I'm going to start with this. An unwillingness to submit is a husband's biggest obstacle. An unwillingness to submit is a husband's biggest obstacle. Now, if I started in verse number 22, which if you look back in your copy of the scripture, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You might be (coughs) thinking that I was referencing an unwillingness to submit on the wife's part is a husband's biggest obstacle. But that's not what I'm saying here at all. I'm saying that an unwillingness to submit on the husband's part is the biggest obstacle for him in his marriage. If you look in verse number 21 of the same chapter, it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is a general reflection of Christian responsibility toward each other relationally that we should be willing to submit to one another. This is speaking beyond marriage, that we should be humble before our brothers and sisters in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. So out of the outflow of submitting to each other because we are submitted to Christ, he says, now wives, submit to your husbands. And he says, now husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. So an unwillingness to submit is always a husband's biggest obstacle. Submitting is a husband's hardest task. Submitting is a husband's hardest task. I'm not saying you need to submit to your wife. Um, I think you should be submissive to your wife, your family, and all those things as we all submit ourselves to one another toward Christ. But for the way the relationship, marriage relationship is supposed to work, it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. What I am suggesting is that me, as a husband, I need to be submitted to Christ. I may think, well, that's just not the way my marriage works, Brother Matt. Uh, th- this is just not the way we do things. I- I'm just not that kind of a person. You know, I- I'm, not a re- I'm not a leader. That's just not me. Listen, this is God's instruction to you, sir. It starts with you, and it starts with your submission to saying, Lord, more than I'm going to be committed to what works, Lord, more than I'm going to be committed to even my wife or my family, I am going to be submitted and committed to you. And you command me to love my wife as Christ has loved the church. And because of this, This will always be my hardest task. Sometimes loving your wife will be easy. 
Sometimes loving your wife will be not easy, but the hardest task will always be submitting to Christ. It is we love our wives because it's a demonstration of our submitting to the word of God and saying, Lord, I'm going to do this as the man of God you've called me to be because you have said it. Here's the thing. Single life thinking will always seek to invade a married man's mind. Single life thinking will always seek to invade a married man's mind. There's an adjustment period, right? Early days in marriage, you get married and you have spent your life thinking about yourself. That doesn't mean you're necessarily more selfish than anyone else. We all can be selfish. But when you've spent your life as a single person, you kind of run your decisions past you and your friends if you want to. Um, If you are living with your parents and you're an adult, maybe there's a courtesy of telling them what's going on in your life, but if once you've become an adult, I mean, functionally, practically, biblically, you kind of should like leave the nest and stand on your own two feet. We can talk of that, of that at another time. Um, but one of the most difficult things will be changing our thinking once we become married. Like, I, remember, I got married in 2005. 2005, and I was 20 years old. I was almost 21 when I got married. It was a month before I turned 21. It took me a little while to realize that I, 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 I'm married to this person. Now, keep in mind, I have dated this girl at this point in my life for a long time. She was my childhood sweetheart. We talked on the phone all the time, didn't really text. It was kind of before that was the normal thing. But now when I got married, that changed. I have a responsibility and obligation to the other half of this tunis which has become one which God has made. And single life thinking will always seek to invade a married man's mind. I don't have to run that by her. I'm a man. I can just, I can do what I want to do. I'm a man. Well, and the answer to that is yeah, you can, you're a man. And that means because you're a man, you and I can make a real mess. So, single life thinking will always seek to invade a married man's life. Then the third principle under this is that submitting to Christ to be the kind of husband he commands is never connected to the wife's behavior or reciprocation of submission. Submitting to Christ to be the kind of husband he commands is never connected to the wife's behavior or reciprocation of submission. You say, preacher, you just don't know what I live with. You just don't know my woman. You don't know my wife. This message can't be for me. Like I'm that guy on the corner of the roof in the Proverbs. Better to be on the corner of a roof than to be in the home with a contentious wife. You're like, yeah, that's like my life verse. I love that verse. That's me. But here's 
Christ's instruction through Paul to you and me. Your wife's behavior or reciprocation of her responsibilities in marriage have nothing to do with God's expectation of you and me to love them as Christ has loved the church. I want you to think how the Christian life would be possible if Jesus only loved us and was faithful to us and was gentle with us only when we deserved it. Think about that for a minute. How in the world could Christian life even be possible if this was the nature of the relationship? You wouldn't even know how to pray. Well, I wonder if he's mad at me right now. Better not ask Jesus anything right now. Better get him back in my good favor. Don't talk to Jesus right now. You'll set him off. It's okay. Yeah. Don't, 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 don't pray before 11 o'clock. Then you're good after that. That's not the way it works. We can approach him at any time because we know he loves us. We know he cares about us. We know that we will be treated with dignity and gentleness. This is who Jesus is. And this is the one that as husbands, we are called to emulate in our relationships. Jesus. So it's good that your wife reciprocate what you give them in love. This is what Jesus desires for his church to do. He wants us to reciprocate what he has done for us and is doing for us. In doing so, it makes a very happy relationship between us and our Lord Jesus. But at the same time, that is not dependent on what he, excuse me, our behavior is not the issue which causes or is the determining factor for his faithfulness. Submitting to Christ to be the kind of husband he commands is never, never connected to the wife's That's why I said earlier, an unwillingness to submit, submit to Christ, is always a husband's biggest obstacle. It's, am I going to be the kind of man that Jesus calls me to be, even if right now in the moment I don't perceive my wife deserves that kind of man, or my family deserves that kind of dad? Am I going to do it just because it's ultimately not about me and them, it's ultimately about me and Christ? This is the framework that he is giving us of how marriage is to work. Because so often we think of marriage as, this is my stuff, this is her stuff. This is my stuff, this is his stuff. I'll do my part, you do your part. And that's good. And that's some, There's a lot of practicality that can be found in thinking about issues through that lens. <clears throat> but when it comes to God's design for marriage, for you to do your part, you don't wait for the other side to do theirs because you're submitted to Christ. For you to be the kind of man God has called you to be, you say, God, make me that man, not God, change my wife so I can be that man. It's, Lord, it starts with me. Principle number two is that the kind of love a husband is to love is specific. The kind of love a husband is to love is specific. Look down at verse 25. 
Husbands, <coughs> love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now the word there in the original, it's a word that you know, even though you're not Greek scholars, you know this, it's agape. Speaking of a sacrificial kind of love, but even if you don't want to look at the original language, Paul spells it out with all the English. He says, listen, this is what love looks like for you to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What kind of love is this? Well, it is a willingly sacrificial kind of love. It is a willingly sacrificial kind of love. Jesus literally loved us so much that he gave himself up for us. He went to the cross and he laid down his life in order that he might pay the price for sin for us. But going to the cross is two parts of a sacrifice. It was not just being willing to die for us. It was being willing to set aside any and all other desires for life that he has to make our life most important. Meaning Hebrews 12 talks about this, that Jesus endured the suffering of the cross for the purpose of the joy set before him. That whatever in his humanness that he would have had desires because we see in Gethsemane in his humanness Jesus did not want to die he said listen Lord if there's another way I really would like that way I I don't want to die on the cross but nonetheless Lord not my will but yours be done when we look and think about this this is a willingly sacrificial thing it is not just hey I'm willing to die for you Jesus is saying, I'm willing to set aside everything about my future life that would have been, and I'm giving that all up for you. It's a surrender in death and life. It's saying, not only am I dying for you, I'm giving you my purpose for living. This is how much Jesus has loved us. Now, y'all, we're in the South, right? Like, It's Southern culture to stick up for your woman. It's like accepted. Like even in the most dysfunctional marriage relationship amongst most Southerners. He may cuss her all day long. He may intimidate her all day long. But if somebody insults her in public, it's, hey, you going to talk to my girl? We're going to finish it right. Like, where does that come from? There is a willingness for us, like, yeah, I'd die for. But Jesus, it wasn't just, I'm going to lay down my life and die for you. It's going to, I'm going to lay down my life and whatever it would have been without you, I'm giving you that too. So it's not just a surrender with our life in death, it's surrender of our life in life. It's saying, Lord, she's worth it. I'm giving her 
my life. I'm not just going to protect her, but I'm giving her, I'm surrendering what I value and find important in life, and I'm setting that aside to pour my love on this woman. That's the kind of sacrificial. It's not just, yeah, I'd die for her. It's I'm taking whatever I'm living for and I'm throwing it out the door. And now I live to care for her. And ultimately I live because Christ lives in me and has enabled me to do this. This is a willingly sacrificial kind of love. Also, it's an intentionally sanctifying kind of love. <laughs> it's an intentionally sanctifying kind of love. Notice the scripture says there in verse number 26, it says that he might sanctify her, that Jesus, when he laid down his life, what he was doing was not just dying for her, he was laying down his life that he might sanctify her, that he might bless who she was going to become. The process of sanctification, we get this idea from the Old Testament and Exodus and Leviticus about being made holy for holy space and service in the temple and in the tabernacle and an intentionally sanctifying kind of love. When you read this, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. You sanctify for two reasons, because of what someone is and also because of what they will be. You sanctify them because they are valuable and you want them in sacred space in the Old Testament. And not only do you sanctify them because they're valuable and you want them in sacred space, you sanctify them because they're valuable and you want them to become the person who belongs in sacred space. That's what sanctification means in the Old Testament as it comes to temple and tabernacle worship. In the New Testament, Jesus has done this for us. He has laid down his life for us that he might sanctify us. He's given us his death. He's given us his life in order. He's put it all out there for us that he might make us into the person that he wants us and desires for us to be. This goes back to the first, one of the first things that I said, or uh, point 1C, Submitting to Christ to be the kind of husband he commands is never connected to the wife's behavior or, recipro or reciprocation of submission. I, the message of sanctification is this, is I'm doing this for you today, believing that this good work is going to bear fruit in your life tomorrow. Because you could say, well, Brother Matt, again, you just don't understand. Like the state of our relationship, the state of our marriage, I, I just, I don't even know if I even started doing the kind of stuff, if I even started loving her like you're telling me I need to love her. It just, it's not going to bear fruit. Maybe not immediately, but sanctification takes a process. Now, you can't change your wife, but the illustration here is that Christ has changed us, but even Christ's changing of us takes time through sanctification. And this is the illustration that's given to the husband in marriage, that you sanctify her, and that is going to take time. Now, we're going to talk here in just a minute about how you do that, because it is through the washing of the water by the word. We'll come back to that in uh, principle number three. But the next thing is not only an intentionally sanctified kind of love, an expectantly hopeful kind of love. <clears throat> an expectantly hopeful kind of love that he might present the church to himself 
in splendor. An expectantly hopeful kind of love. Why is Christ loving the church so sacrificially? Why is he sanctifying the church in order that she might become the church that she is supposed to be? Why do we do this for our wives? In order that she might become the woman, the wife that God has called her to be for our part. Now, she has a part too. I'm gonna talk about that next week. But for our part as husbands is I am doing this not to manipulate her, but to obey Christ because his word changes things. And when we do things God's way, it encourages God's work in our lives. It's not a magic formula, but God's design works. You've just got to give it time. But there is an expectantly hopeful kind of love that Paul is saying that Jesus not only sacrificed for what was, but who they would be, and he looked forward to the day that it would be better when he would present the church to himself in splendor. But then also a nourishing, cherishing kind of love. A nourishing, cherishing kind of love. Look down in uh, verse number 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. What is Paul saying? He says, hey, listen, let's talk about you for a second, sir. Do you get up in the morning and eat breakfast? He said, oh, I don't eat breakfast. What, do you eat lunch? I don't eat lunch either. What, do you eat dinner? Yeah, or you eat something. Why do you do that? Because you want to keep the body going. Do you sleep at night to recharge your batteries? Yeah, you do. Uh, do you drink water when you're thirsty? Yeah, I do that. Yeah, I, yeah, I do that. Do you exercise and take care of your body? No, I, I, don't, I don't do that or something. But the point is, do you ever think twice about giving your body what it is demanding and needing in the moment? Unless you're trying to do something to discipline your body, unless you're trying to do some diet, unless you're trying to meet a goal or something like that. For instance, if you're thirsty, you don't just say, you know what, I'm not going to give you water today. No, you just go get a drink. Why? Because you don't even think about giving your body what it needs. You don't even think about it. And this is what Paul says. This is what sacrificial love looks like as you think about your wife. You give her what she needs, and you don't even think about it. It's never a question. It's always an expectation. You give them what they need. Because as you would do this for your own body, you do for her. A willingly sacrificial kind of love. An intentionally sanctifying kind of love. An expectantly hopeful kind of love. A nurturing, cherishing kind of love. And there are three words. You say, well, give me some practical action here, preacher. Three words this week. Three. And they all start with W. Try to make it easy to remember for me. 
There are three words every husband can remember to capture Christ's heart when it comes to marriage. Is number one, I want you to think this week about willingness. Willingness. I don't think Jesus ever is going to introduce us in the heavenly court to God and the angels as saying, all right, well, it's time for y'all to meet my old ball and chain. I don't think it's going to happen. We're not his ball and chain. We are his bride. We are his bride. He wants us to be seen at his side. We are the one he wants to present in splendor to say, look at her. This week, uh, Andrea called me, and uh, she was a little frustrated. And I don't know who this individual was. I'm assuming it wasn't one of y'all, but if it was, shame on you. <laughs> um, kind of, and you'll get where I'm coming from. But she went to Walmart, and uh, on Tuesday, she had spoken at the Park Gate banquet uh, that took place, and I thought she did just a wonderful job. But that day, she... Phil Robertson, who was the speaker, wanted glass bottle Coca-Colas. And so we were trying to track down glass bottle Coca-Colas. And she went to Walmart looking for them. As she was walking into the store, she said a man, she said he was dressed normal. I don't know what that means. But <coughs> she said, Matt, he was about our age and he was dressed normal. And he saw me across the parking lot. And she said, I saw him looking at me. And he said, she said, he started walking straight towards me and then followed me into the store. And she said, I'm staring kind of where I'm going to go in the store. And he walks up next to me and he's standing next to me. She said, I know he's looking at me. He's just staring at me. She said, it's really awkward. She said, you will not believe what he said to me. He said, ma'am, <laughs> you are the most gorgeous thing that I have ever seen. She said, can you believe that he would be so forward to talk like that to me? And I said, honey, that's terrible. I can't believe that anyone would be so rude and forward to, to say that. Huh. I just have to talk to somebody about it. It's just so weird. You don't walk up and say, you're the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen. She said, you don't do that. Okay, baby, don't you worry about it. It'll be all right. I said, you, you want me to call the sheriff? You know, uh, no, 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 no. Okay, oh, okay, okay. I hung up the phone. And she lives with me. <laughs> she lives with me. I tell you what. Y'all, she makes me look good. Um, <laughs> not going to argue with that, man. It's probably not the best place to say it. There's a willingness. There's a willingness on Christ's part to love his church, there should be a willingness on our part to love our wives. Secondly is words. Words, the big W. That the washing of the water by the word. When we looked at Genesis 2 a lot, and then we looked at Genesis 3 a lot, and Genesis 3 is the fall of man, and nothing good happens in that whole chapter. So you think, except for one verse. Put it on the screen. This is the only good thing that man does in the entire fall of man's saga. In Genesis 3, this is right after God tells the man, 
You are dust, and to dust you shall return, and you just hear the bass guitar. It's just, it's going to be bad. And then the first thing, and it says right after that, and man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Don't miss what just took place there. The first thing Adam says after the world falls apart is he looks at Eve, and let me tell you what he does not say. Wait a go. See what you got us into? Or, hey, I'm going to come up with a name for you. Uh, Eve, we're going, to, we're going to call you death or bringer of death because we're all going to die because of the fruit, okay? Death, that's your name. No, what does he call her? He looks at her and despite the curse, believes God's promise that the seed of woman is going to crush the seed of the devil. And he says, despite this hard day, Eve, or despite this hard day, woman, because you didn't have a name yet, we're going to call you Eve, which means life giver. Adam is the first person to speak words of life over his wife. How do you wash your wife through sanctifying her by the word? Is you speak God's promises to her. Like, there's a major disconnect. Guys see this and go, yeah, I'm supposed to preach it, my wife. We're going to start with 522. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's to the Lord. That's scripture, honey. You don't start there. Adam looked at her and said, I look at you and I see life giver. He gave her the promises of God. It's a Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7. In Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7, if this were the PG-13 service, I'd read you the whole chapter, but this is the PG service. He gets to verse number 7, after he's described every part of her body and saying she's beautiful, and he says this, you're altogether beautiful, my love, there's no flaw in you. And the amazing thing about this is if you read chapter 1, the girl tells you about the flaws of her appearance. The girl knows what's wrong with her, but then the husband comes along and says, "Uh uh-uh, not to me. I'll take you just like you are. You're beautiful, and there's no flaw in you. This is speaking words of life. This is sanctifying her through the word. This is calling her and giving her the truth that is true about her, the same truth that Jesus gives to us, that no matter what we've done, we're told, no, 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 no. That may be true for some other people, but it's not true for me. You're mine. I love you. And there's no flaw in you because I say it. That is washing your wife with the water of the word. Also, the next thing is work. Work. What does that mean? Jesus, in loving his wife, excuse me, in loving his church, it took work. He sweat drops of blood. For you and I to do this, sir, it's going to take work. Is there a willingness on your part? Are there words on your part? Is there work that you're willing to do? This is the man that God has called you to be. Out of interest of time, I'm not going to give you the rest of the stuff here today. Um, are, there, are there blanks on that outline? Are they off? Oh, goodness gracious. Let me give them to you then. You can fill them in. 
Jesus loved us. And you can look at the scripture on your own time. He chose us. He saved us. He cleansed and cleanses us. And Jesus finishes the work that he began in us. All of those scriptures remind us of what Christ has done for us. And for us, his husbands, we are reminded Jesus is, ne- is asking you to do for your wife what he has already done for you. This is a profound mystery, says Paul. And he says, I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and Lord, we ask that you be with us. Lord, I pray for the men who are in this room. Lord, it's so easy to be passive. Lord, it's so easy to think, well, I'll just wait until she does something. Lord, it's so easy to just expect change in a relationship to start with them. (coughs) Lord, help us be Adam after we get the worst news in the world speaking words of life to Eve. Lord, help us be Jesus that we set aside life and whatever we thought our life would be to love our wives as you have loved us. Lord, and we love you and bless you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.